I should just say before we do get started that I am strangely bothered by hallucinations. I can't help thinking, I don't know whether you've been think, thinking about this, that if in news, if as a journalist, you get something wrong, it's a mistake or it's fake news or it's a libel and a lawsuit. But if you work in the world of AI, mm -hmm. do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> no. Yeah. It's a they framed it as a... They framed it as a hallucination. Ab aberration. As if it's somehow their mistakes are slightly groovier and trippier, and yet that's the classic and Just something that can get explained away. Yes, it's a hallucination, yeah. but actually it's, hallucination. it's less traceable, it's yeah. less discoverable than a mistake in news. And it's just one of those things, I think I'm in an AI funk at the moment, but it's one of those things where I think to myself, the risk is we don't actually get to grips with the fact that they're making the mistakes which have the same real world consequences, even worse, mm. but they're somehow framed as a technology problem, not a real world problem. They're a yeah. hallucination. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that said, if we get anything wrong here, it's a hallucination. <laughs> Welcome to the news meeting. President Vladimir Zelensky is calling for the world to help with the dam collapse in southern Ukraine, which has triggered a humanitarian and ecological disaster. Today, Russian terrorists have once again proved that they are a threat to everything living. The PGA Tour has agreed to merge with Saudi-backed Live Golf. Smoke still smothering New York City, blown here from out-of-control wildfires in Canada. The scene was set for an historic, dramatic courtroom showdown. Prince Harry alleges the private information splashed over the pages came from journalists who use illegal methods to get exclusives. I'm James Harding, I'm the editor of Tortoise, and here from our newsroom in London, we meet to try and figure out what matters in the news. If so, why it matters. And ideally, get a sense of what the story really means and where it leads. And today I'm joined by Jess Winch, Charles Wattel, two fellow editors at here at Tortoise, and I'm delighted by Matthew Barson, who's done a fair few things, former US ambassador here in the UK and prior to that in Sweden, but of course, most importantly, chairman and publisher of Tortoise. Thanks for coming, Matthew. Let's get started with long stories short. Jess, do you want to go first? What's yours in a single sentence? In a single word. Oh, gosh. Damn busters. Oh, it's going to be hard to beat that one this week. Okay, Giles? Golf sells out. Interesting. Matthew? It's autumn in June. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Brought to you by Keats or something like that. <laughs> yes, okay, very good. Well, listen, why don't we go with the story that has dominated the news, Dan Busters. Jess, you go first. Yes, thank you. So this is, as you say, the story that has dominated the news quite rightly, I think, this week. It is the destruction of Ukraine's uh, Kakovka Dam in the southern Kherson region. And I think... This story is the defining story of the week uh, because even if there wasn't a war happening, the scale of the disaster and the possible long-term impact is still a huge story regardless. It's a huge story from a humanitarian perspective. You've got 42,000 people on both sides of the river who've been affected. There's warnings of landmines that have been obviously liberally spread on both sides that have now just been lifted up and they're just floating downstream. 180,000 people without clean drinking water and so on. You've got an environmental point uh, it's being compared to Chernobyl just in, in terms of the long-term impact on the landscape. This was a key feature of the Ukrainian landscape, and it's it's gone. It's been washed away. And you've got, as well as um, all the water that's come down, you've got around 150 tonnes of industrial lubricant also being washed away. You've got a lot of oil. 
Uh, and then on top of that, you have the agricultural impact. Global wheat prices went up 3% once when the dam burst because we know all about the um, grain deal that's being negotiated at the difficulty of getting grain out. This is where it's grown. So it has huge implications for that for, for years. And then on top of that, you have a nuclear plant nearby, which is the only bit of good news. Looks as though that for now it's not in immediate danger, but that's still a worry. And then on top of that, you put it in the context of a war. So you have a population that was already faced, obviously, uh, over a year now of, uh, of an invasion from Russia. And I think where it goes next raises the question that if Russia is responsible for this, what will they do next? It raises this question of escalation, of how you respond to something like this as uh, an ally of Ukraine, uh, and where, where you need to draw the line and how. Uh, and Jess, you rattled off a whole run of numbers at the start there. How confident are you that they're true? It feels as though just before the dam burst, there was such a burst was blown up. Mm. There was such a run of conflicting accounts of, you know, Russia making inroads on Ukrainian forces, Ukrainian spring offensive or now summer offensive making inroads on Russian forces. That felt like there was a war of narratives, too. Mm -hmm. It was hard to know what was true. So when you say 42,000 or 180,000 people without drinking water, mm -hmm. where are you getting that information from? How confident are you in it? So you're right. Over this whole, the course of this war, you've seen narrative, you've seen counter-narrative. It's been a key feature in this. These numbers I'm confident in because I have read them in enough places from differently sourced areas that I feel pretty safe in asserting that these are true. And this is not, uh, these aren't, these are numbers that I think it's in terms of how many people live in that area. It's not a question of he said, she said, we attack, no, you attack, no, we attack there. It's just, this is, this is what I think I believe to be, to the best of my knowledge, given that I am not there, yeah. um, then the best numbers I can reach for in the situation. And, and do you know, or do you feel like you're confident in knowing what happened? Who blew it up how? No. And I don't think anyone is. Um, so I this was is like not the Nord Stream thing all over again. It's like one of these sort of big moments in the war that then gets contested about who exactly did what. It gets contested, yes. Um, and I think people are being relatively cautious about saying now that it is uh, contested or, you know, that Russia says that Kiev did it, Kiev says that Russia did it. But I think that being said, it is really important to emphasize the fact that in this particular situation, Russia had far more to gain than Ukraine did, that Russia has a history of scorched earth tactics in uh, regions and areas that it is that it has occupied. Russia has, as we very well know, a history of attacking Ukrainian infrastructure, um, and uh, a disregard, sort of a, a more a tendency to drive the escalatory pattern in a, in a testing phase and then deny it had anything to do with that. Yeah. So yes, there is a very slim chance that perhaps this was a structural defect, that it was due to, which would still be criminal negligence, this was a Russian controlled dam. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, you can just say, this is what I believe to be true. Matthew, what do you think? When Jess had the one word one, you said this was going to be hard to beat. <laughs> uh, and it is for all the reasons Jess is saying. I don't have much to add other than um, any one of those statistics is sort of overwhelming and uh, and I'm just so curious, as the non-journalist sitting around this table, how is, is there a common um, lingo or scale that you all use with one another of levels of certainty for places you don't live? Or what does Nina say? Or what is, you know, just how do you start to 
Charles? I wanted to channel Nina on that. Nina is Nina Kuryata is a uh, Ukraine editor, and uh, she it was just astonished at the caution on the part of Sunak, on the part of the Biden administration, in apportioning blame to Russia. Um, and I have a deal of sympathy for that because it's quite clear that this shrinks the battlefield in Russia's favour, uh, just as Ukraine was about to get started with the spring-slash-summer offensive. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, Russia's stock in trade is to lie. It's led by a liar, a professional trained liar. Um, uh, and for what it's worth, Ukraine identified quite quickly afterwards specific uh, rifle battalions that it blamed for blowing up the dam. And, uh, and uh, I say for what it's worth, I think it's worth a lot. Well, and what do you think it says about us? Because Charles uh, and I were at a dinner with a former UK Defence Secretary this week. And one of the things that we talked about was how do you explain the gap between the West's rhetorical response and military response? In effect, what the West, what NATO seems to be saying is we are very much against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but we are willing to tolerate a long war because we don't want to risk escalation. And what he said, which I thought was really interesting, was that we in the West are over-worried about retaliation and we need to make Russia over-worry about retaliation. Mm. Uh, and, George, you were there. Because yeah. I think if you see this, you see, just see the pictures, you see what's happened with this time and think this would be a spur to more action, but so far not. It, it's a good argument. He, he made it well. And uh, I, in my gut, I agree. I want to see F-16s there yesterday. But two things uh, in response. He said he did not believe that if Putin were to escalate, in other words, were to order a limited nuclear strike, he does not believe that the chain of command would hold. He does not believe that the order to actually uh, fire the weapons would be given. I don't know where he get that, gets that from, and I don't, I don't think it's safe to... No, he had a reason for it, Charles. He had a reason which was when Putin put Russia on a higher nuclear alert level, it didn't happen. The evidence that he cites is that there's a conservatism in the Russian military chain of com command, which means that their response isn't, doesn't accord to Vladimir Putin's mm -hmm. rhetoric. So that was his argument for it. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of Chinese whispers here. Uh, yes, I defer to his contacts, but I refer you, sir, to <laughs> Kevin Ryan, former military attaché in the US Embassy in Moscow, writing recently in Foreign Affairs, saying, guys, guys, we are radically underestimating the risk of nuclear escalation in this conflict. And uh, while I and so many people chafe at the Biden administration's caution in all this, at every stage of increasing armaments to, to Ukraine. It, as I've often said, if there's one place in the world where you want them to be taking seriously the risk of mad, mutually assured destruction, as we used to call it, it's in the Oval. And just, sorry, go on. I was only going to add to that as well. The, the, the fact that I think this puts even more um, importance on the fact that Ukraine's allies need to accept that this may drag on. I think we're at a risk this particularly this year. You see a lot of talk about Ukraine being under pressure to make substantive gains this year ahead of what will in all likelihood be quite an uncertain US election cycle and what how that mood may shift over the sort of next 12 months. But you can't you can't end a war quickly just because everyone would prefer it that way. You have to end it in a way that obviously doesn't escalate it in a way that um, could end so catastrophically. Is that our read Matthew is that not only the 
military inadequacy of the West response means we're in for a long war. But just reading the political cycles, we've got a general election here in the UK next year. You've got a presidential election in the <coughs> US with a, you know, 12, 15 month run into a US presidential election. Is the West's read right that the US will do everything it can to avoid a big military entanglement before America votes? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have. No, I mean, I, I think it's worth... You were talking about how people cover... Famously, I guess, journalists who cover the Pentagon or the Ministry of Defense, you know, they're just sitting there. People say a bunch of words. They don't write down anything yeah. until they say numbers. Right. If you cover the State Department, it's just like you're mildly outraged. You know what I mean? They're always just... <laughs> numbers don't matter. It's just adjectives and adverbs and words uh, and not numbers that matter. And when it comes to the White House, um, I think it is, in the case of the Biden administration and, and certainly in the Obama administration, which I served in, so I don't feel particularly, you know, I have no special insight into what's going on in the Biden White House, but to really listen to what they are saying and imagine the scenarios they are, Giles just pointed this out, that they are thinking through. Mm. Um, that, um, which obviously includes politics. I mean, they can say it's not political, but in a democracy, of course it's political. And, and that shouldn't be, it, when you say something is political, it shouldn't mean petty, partisan for personal gain. It's like being political in our democracies is a positive thing. It's a the alternatives to being political are unattractive, I think, and not something we should welcome. So we shouldn't call people out for being political. And political is a full concept, which includes electoral success at the ballot box. It includes what your legacy is going to be as um, uh, as a leader. It includes all sorts of other things that should be factored in and not encourage people to factor out these things. Well, should we just basically switch off the mics and say, look, we've already, we already know that this damn story is the story and we don't need to go on, or should we <laughs> I don't know. Press you haven't on. heard the other press like so many <laughs> emails. All right. Yeah. Matthew, autumn and June. I'm so glad I get to go next. Yeah. Mine isn't properly really a story, if I'm honest. It is It is a plea for collaboration. <laughs> for honest. some smart. Okay, so autumn and June. It has to do with it, it, it was spurred by a story in, a, uh, in the FT the morning I arrived here in London. It was a tough day for news back in America. This is the day, all the stuff that was happening with CNN that we've read about. We had um, hundreds of journalists at Gannett newspapers, I think across eight different states, not all, um, strike, walk out, uh, and demand new leadership at their newspaper. And then I think big layoffs at the LA Times, just to name a few all on one day. And so I arrive in London, a city I love that has a vibrant and healthy publishing uh, newspapers. And so I pick up all the papers and I'm reading through them. And I come across this article on in the FT. It's the big read. I have it here with me. Labor's surprisingly bold agenda. And it's uh, it's big. There's only one graph in it. And it's the graph of how big the labor uh, poll lead is over the Tories since September, which has nothing as far as I can make out to do with their bold economic agenda. And they reference Biden. Biden economics, Bidenomics, mm -hmm. I guess is how you shorten it, and and com and making those comparisons. And I thought, uh oh, I love comparing the U.S. and the United Kingdom. I think there's such interesting comparisons to be done, just not in that way. I think it should be the 11 Downing Street accounts. 
Mm-hmm. So Westminster accounts took things that were, uh, to coin, I think, James, your phrase, plenty of transparency, just no visibility. Oh, I should just say that the Westminster accounts were our effort, along with Sky, to try and take all of the data and material that's published in Parliament about how money moves through our politics and try and make sense of it, because there was tons and tons of stuff published, but it was almost impossible to see what was really going on. There's something very similar going on with back home in America and here around economic models that politicians promise. But something really different happens here in the United Kingdom. Let's go back 25 years. That is the last time the United States passed a budget. Mm -hmm. 1996, Spice Girls topped the charts here. (laughs) Um, If you take those same 25 years and you think, well, look, 12 and a half of those years, you had labor government in power, 12 and a half-ish, you've had Tories in power. Let's go back, armed with great journalists and chat GPT, see, I'm going to get AI in here, (laughs) and go set it in motion to be like, what were all the promises made? What were the actual budgets submitted? How would you score what people's promises versus actual outcomes are? And to the extent chat GPT and things like it are conventional wisdom generators, I think there's almost no conventional wisdom as it relates to this stuff. So so the... The whole idea there, Matthew. Did I win? You will. You've walked, it. You've, <laughs> walked it. You've walked it. Not least, you know, for having come such a long way. But the whole <laughs> idea there is the the dream of the non-journalist about journalism, ah. which is that you can somehow come in and make sense of complexity. You can, if you like, actually, contrary to what you just said earlier, take the politics out of politics and and if you like, like a doctor mm. diagnose. The, the, the patient that is the nation. You can actually somehow look at economic policies and say, th- this is the performance overall. And I think the, the problem is, and I don't know, Charles, Jess, I remember what you think, but I think the reason why that's so difficult, and I understand the framing, I understand the CNN in trouble, Gannett in trouble, LA Times, in the UK, you've seen the Telegraph. I can understand it in the context of, hey, journalists, there's a problem. Listen to the problem that we as mm. listeners and readers have. And I understand the framing, too, that says, look, even when the FT looks in depth at the Starmer case, it, it does it without real context. You know, it illustrates with something that's not illustrative. I understand all the points you're making there. But the thing that I think is really difficult is the 11 Downing Street accounts. The idea that you can, in some really clinical way, mm. assess economic policy Choices and the reason I think journalistically that's difficult is one yeah. is it, it, one is you're in the deep in the world of think tankery and academia. It's a hard sell as okay. a story, but the second is that you are making judgments about human choices, about prioritizations, about health versus defence, about north oh, versus south. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those things are real, no, that, that, and that stuff is all that ever gets covered as far as as a as a. Uh, you know, observer of what goes on in this country. Charles? Uh, I agree with Matthew. I think you're heading down a blind alley on think tanks. I have a less sophisticated interpretation of what Matthew was saying, Mm -hmm. which is it's not about choices. It's about measuring promises against outcomes. And I think you could use a work experience person or chat GPT <laughs> to, to put them on a spreadsheet in an afternoon. And I think that would be very interesting. Can I just say about my AI funk? <laughs> the fact that you just said work experience person or chat GPT, I think is really, you know, calcifying the funk. I but think you may be underestimating the power of the human brain. 
to discuss. Jess, what do you think of this? I think the I, I agree as well in that far too often you have news stories and this is because this is what politicians say of just number after number after number and the number keeps changing and it's very hard to keep track of actually what that means and as you say even in the commons and in debates they're throwing different numbers at each other going oh you failed on this well no because we've achieved this and it's very hard to actually tell Mm. so I think but I think it doesn't have to be as complicated as you seem it can be as simple as this is so for example if 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 Labour is saying we're going to spend 28 billion a year on these green economic policies well then if they come into power you hold them against that and in, in, it can be as simple as a line going, this is how much they've spent in 2023. This is how much they promised. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. Charles, let's go to your story. What have you got? So this is the roughly reported $3 billion deal between the PGA Tour, the Professional Golf Tour, and the Saudi Public Investment Fund, Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, which ends a battle between PGA and a separate rebel Saudi-funded golf tour set up last year called Live. Um, It will end lawsuits between those two branches of the golf world. It will enrich enormously the Uh, every professional golfer in the world, including in due course the rebels who went off to the Saudi tour and and will come back. But it has enraged two groups of people. The golfers who found a spine, including Tiger Woods, and said, no, we're not going to take Saudi money, we're going to stay with the PGA Tour. It goes without saying, of course, that they were all fine anyway. (laughs) But Tiger Woods was offered about $650 we're we're told, to to go to Saudi Arabia. And the other group of people who are enraged are everybody else who sees a sport selling out to a regime which has problems. Now, very briefly here, um, the problem which is most often cited is the dismemberment of the journalist Jamal al Khashoggi. 
uh, as a sort of totem of what the modern Saudi Arabia does, all its efforts at reform notwithstanding. And it's true, it's unfortunate that they chopped up a journalist for the Washington Post, right? But it actually really annoys me that that's the only thing that's ever cited, because that is also, let's not forget, the regime that recently uh, renewed male guardianship as a sort of foundation of its uh, social social fabric which still locks people up for long prison terms um, 10 and more for tweeting in favour of reform so long story short I do not see a fundamental moral difference between Saudi now and South Africa mid 1980s I think that in basic moral terms the case for a boycott is just as strong against Saudi now as it was against South Africa then and I think the fact that they are sports washing to such a great extent, the numbers are eye-watering, perhaps not compared with numbers in professional football in in the US, but not indeed compared with the total numbers Mm. available to the Saudi uh, Sovereign sovereign Wealth Fund But, um, but the fact that they have set so much store by sports washing shows how much a sports boycott would hurt and that is what should be happening fundamentally, do you close the door on Saudi Arabia or do you bring, try and bring Saudi Arabia in? That's, that, it's, the, it's the China story of the 1990s, mm-hmm. post-Tiananmen. This was the same debate that happened uh, vis-a-vis the West and China in the 90s. It's the same debate in many ways that's happening around China now. And I, and I just wonder, Charles, that the force of what you say around male guardianship, around the exclusive, exclusion of women, we haven't talked about Yemen, all of those points I take... But, but I am really torn around Saudi Arabia on this because it feels to me as though in the, in the security and confidence of our, of our rightness about this position, we actually make the world a worse place. And I wonder whether or not the coming together of these kinds of organizations is better than the fragmentation of the world into these big regional power blocks who spend their time arguing over real things as well as values. There's a, another realm in which this is really interesting to me, um, which isn't where you're taking it, um, but it is what can we learn about sort of uh, organizations challenging one another, bullying one another? What are the patterns of behavior that have been rewarded or discouraged as a result of how this played itself out? That I think is interesting because people are willing to talk about and learn about sport and the organizations, I mean, witness the the Super League that lasted 11 hours or something mm-hmm. and how quickly it was dismantled because the backroom stuff ran up against stuff you couldn't see but was real and powerful in terms of people's love of this game that you all created and the world has brought into themselves in the case of football. So I don't think we can overdo talking about systems and uh, all that stuff, sports washing included, and how this... You know, the angle that this story brings out about Jess, did the wrong people win. Jess, what do you think? I think that um, for all the reasons Giles has said, this is a great story that actually I was thinking about doing, so I was quite cross when I found out that, <laughs> that he was doing it. Because, uh, because yes, all of us have agreed, even if you don't follow golf, this has so many other elements to it. I think that I'm also interested in more of, of where the oil money goes next. Are there other sports that are vulnerable to this? Are there mm. other kind of similar is this pattern something we could see playing out in different ways with different actors is a is a question I would have um, and on the debate you were having I don't see it in such a 
zero-sum game format of either we should be completely blocking Saudi Arabia or we should be bringing them along. Because I think your point is true in the, of, of China's economic advancement and the benefits that has brought. But it is also true that people assume that by bringing them into the kind of the economic advance from the democratic clubs that they would become more democratic and that has manifestly not turned out to be the case. So I think there needs to be... Uh, a conversation more about guardrails, about what behaviour is acceptable and what is not, as opposed to all-out boycotts or all-out inclusion. Mm. So uh, I'm going to have a go in a moment at just trying to pull it together and give a view of how, what I think the running order should be. This is about as difficult a week as I can remember, to be honest. So I, I'm going to give you a go first. Matthew, the rules, is, if you know this, are that you're allowed to pick a story but not your own. Okay. So why don't you go first? What would you choose to well, need? Well, I... I thought it was going to be Jess's story uh, for all the compelling reasons, but it actually, Jess's articulation of what interested her about Giles' story has convinced me to go with Giles' story about PGA, LIV, um, and what this means for what Jess just said. Jess? I would go for the Saudi Gulf story as well. And Giles? I'll go with Dan Busters because I understand it. And because I think it will affect the course of the war this year, um, but I do agree that the war will go on, and I'm grateful uh, that people seem to realise that. Right, well, I am going to indulge, if you will allow me, just for one minute on a story that we didn't mention, but is true about the way newsrooms think about stories and certainly the way we think about a story this week, which is just to talk for a moment about Crispin Odie. The reason it's important is Crispin Odie is one of the big financiers in London, most successful uh, fund managers, big donor to the Conservative Party, to Brexit. But for a long, long time, there were rumours around about sexual harassment, sexual assault. So, so in our podcast, Octopus, Paul Caruana Galizia had five women coming forward making allegations of sexual assault and harassment. The FT, actually working with Paul, has now published allegations involving 13 women. Chris Benodi denies, strenuously denies it all. And it just seems to me that this is one of those moments where news organisations have to choose between what's big and public and out there, the blowing up of a dam, i.e. the story that, if you like, has rolled into the newsroom and the story that they've gone out to get. They've been told that there's a lead to follow, and in Paul's case, he really has. And it feels to me as though that's a story you want to keep pursuing. You want to ensure that it's getting attention because there's still such big questions. There's questions about the firm that reprimanded him, but that reprimand was never made public. The way that reprimand was passed to the Financial Conduct Authority, the regulator of uh, funds like ODI, but the effort to investigate on behalf of the FCA has never been made public, and the FCA, despite our repeated requests, has never answered whether or how it's investigating Crispin Odie. The police that seem to have quite doggedly put process ahead of investigation, so so few of the people who've made these allegations have been able to go through any meaningful police process, and also then a cultural phenomenon where here's someone who works in Mayfair, dines in some of the finest restaurants in London, these events happen in his Chelsea home or at a, you know, shoot in the countryside, and there's a kind of social nervousness about talking. There's a posh omerta around it, and that combined with a regulatory confidentiality that blurs into secrecy and then entrenches and enables people in power, I just think you would honestly as a newsroom think to yourself, 
well maybe that leads maybe that leads because that's the story that we care about that said it's not the story we pitched so here's the way in which I'm going to run it I would Matthew as you say um, uh, not breaking news but uh, instruction to work take the uh, 11 Downing Street accounts as a project. I do think there's something really interesting in autumn in June, i.e. understanding budget decision making in the UK and the US and seeing how they compare. I've long been jealous of the way in which the US measures its judges. It's much, much better at measuring and understanding judges' decisions. We don't do anything like that for the judiciary here, but we could score the Treasury in the UK in a way that we would then do the same with the US. And I think that would be a really interesting project. So let's hope that we come back and have this conversation when the findings of that exercise lead the news. And I'm really torn between dams mm. and golf. I'm really torn because I think that it's in many ways more interesting, the Saudi story, in that it sa says something about the way in which the world is shifting. You know, for a long period, it felt as though the world was shifting, you know, on its axis, on its axis, sorry, from kind of west to east, I think we're seeing a shift from north to south, and the scale of Saudi power through finance, but into things like sport and culture, are such a telling way of realizing that our worldview, a 20th century worldview of northwest power, is fundamentally shifting. But that said, you can't get away from the reality of people's lives ruined by a clear act of war, it seems to me an act of war, whether it's negligence or a bomb, an act of war that has real-life impacts on tens of thousands of people, that has environmental impacts and changes our understanding of vulnerability, and fundamentally is going to impact us sooner or later in our everyday lives, cost of living. So for that reason, I would run dams, golf, budgets. One, two, three. Well done, Jess. Thank you. Well I, thought I'd, I thought I'd handed it to you. <laughs> exactly, by endorsing. That's classic, isn't it? Exactly, endorsing it and then regretting it. Uh, very good. Uh. Well, listen, um, Matthew, uh, Jess, Charles, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you most of all uh, for listening. I hope you'll join us next week. We've got a rather special uh, news meeting coming up. We're hosting this big uh, festival in a field in the English countryside called Kite. And so this weekend we'll be recording the news meeting live. Um, if you hear a little background noise, it just tells you how much fun we're having. Thanks so much for listening. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.